everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a Senior Advisor to Skybridge Capital based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology and politics. Now SALT Talks, as many of you know, is a series of digital interviews with some of the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. And just as we do at our Global SALT conference series, we aim to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Today's focus is going to be on language and culture in the Arab world, and I cannot think of anyone better to speak to than Dr. Tagreed Al-Saraj, the first Saudi female postdoctorate in the history of UC Berkeley. Tagreed is the CEO and co-founder of Upskillable, which we'll no doubt learn more about later. She is considered one of the most important Saudi researchers focusing on language education in the Arab culture. And she's also the author of The Anxious Language Learner, A Saudi Woman's Story. Tagreed has presented on the topic of foreign language anxiety at international conferences around the world. She's a certified woman leadership coach, international public speaker, and an educational consultant. As always, if you have any questions for Tagreed throughout today's talk, just enter them in the Q&A section on your screen. Tagreed, welcome to SALT Talks. Uh, thank you for having me. So firstly, completely by default, I must admit, rather than by design, you actually launched a new magazine today as well. So <laughs> congratulations on that thank achievement. You. And, you. you know, you have such an interesting background and we've, we've had a few conversations now and I want to dive deeper into this intersection between uh, education and language. But first, tell me a bit more about your love of education and where that stemmed from. Oh, uh, love of education. I think when I was, since I was little, I was like always uh, helping other colleagues of mine or students, uh, explaining to them uh, how did we get to either math or uh, sciences. Those are my strongest subjects. Uh, and so I always had the, the, the love of explaining and specifically to make things simpler in order for everybody to understand. Uh, and that's, uh, that's one of the things to be a good uh, teacher, let's say, uh, is that uh, the ability to simplify the material. Uh, and so I was always that. Um, a lot of my friends came to me for that. So I think it was in my genes <laughs> since little. Uh, it just grew. I'd love to also maybe touch upon, you know, how that simplification piece builds into what you're doing now with Upskillable. But one thing that you've studied is the anxiety that comes with learning a language. And as I mentioned uh, to the audience, you've also written a book called The Anxious Language Learner, A Saudi Woman's Story. What started your English, uh, your interest in language specifically? Here's the book. This is the book. Beautiful. Um, we all expect free copies. Oh, oh, <laughs> yes, I will. I will give you, send you. Uh, the 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 whole inspiration of the book. I never I never intended to write the book. I was I was doing it for a research uh, paper, uh, but it was so much information that it ended up to be a book, uh, and not an article uh, in a journal. So what was the inspiration is that uh, my my PhD was on 
uh, how language anxiety can affect language learners and specifically in the Middle East and, and, and Saudi and the Gulf area uh, because how culture interacts with our, our way of, uh, of learning and uh, how we, um, uh, we have the saving face, uh, all of these things that we grew up uh, and the ideology that we had, um, and you cannot fail, it's very shameful. And, and so that's how I started thinking is like, why is anxiety, why languages, learning languages, something supposed to be very uh, enjoyable, something that you would love to, to learn and to use became such a thing that people were uh, fearing and running away from. When I was uh, teaching, before I was doing my PhD, I saw the students uh, when I had my master's and I was, uh, I was a lecturer at the time at one of Saudi universities here, uh, I saw how students either dropped out of my classes uh, and drop and changed majors altogether just because they couldn't handle learning a language. And every time I was asking them, so what's going on? Why, why aren't, um, why aren't you putting more effort? And they say, we're excellent students, top grades in Arabic, but when it comes to English, I just don't know what's wrong with me. I think it's something, uh, uh, you know, they don't know what's going on. And so they think maybe it's a black eye or, or uh, uh, that somebody has cursed on me that I can't do languages. And, and it was so silly to think that. For me, at the time, I didn't know anything existed, such called language anxiety. When I did my PhD, so that gave me the motivation to look in what was hindering these students from learning a language. And the more I, when I, when I got accepted to do my PhD uh, at uh, UCL Institute of Education at University of London, the more I researched this area, I found that something is called foreign language anxiety. It's the same as math anxiety, public speaking anxiety. And, and I was like inspired by, you know, could it be the, the things that I thought these students were not, you know, putting effort, are they anxious students? And that's what I was, I was so surprised that yes, all the symptoms that they were telling me they had was the anxiety they were feeling when it came to learning the language. Uh, some students said to me, the minute I come into the class, I start, you know, I get headaches, stomach pains, uh, uh, and uh, palpitation, uh, sweaty palms. And I was like, what? You know, I, I, I didn't know the symptoms. I didn't know. But the more when I researched, I found out that there is such something and it's called foreign language anxiety. And those were the symptoms. So then at the end, it's not enough to know the problem. You now have to cure it or have to do. And so we learned how the techniques to uh, calm the students down in order to show them that language is, is something you should enjoy. It's not uh, something you should be feared from. And the minute you start changing the mindset, then comes the, the enjoyability of learning that language whichever language it is, uh, but in our case was English at the time. And so uh, when I did my PhD, I did it in a way as if it was a story. Uh, so when I was in my Viva, the professor, the examiners, when they came in and they said, we loved reading this book and it's a Viva. Usually when you, 
when you write your viva, usually you put it in there after you finish the examination and you get your degree, they put it in the library and you, you know, barely anybody looks at it again unless they're doing research. But uh, what the most enjoyable you know, compliment I got was we really loved reading this book. And it was like, it was a story because the whole thing was stories after story of what the students were going through, but with statistics and everything scientific. Uh, and so when, and then I started uh, teaching there and I learned from what the students were giving me even more. Now being a researcher, expert in the field, uh, I thought, you know what? It's not enough to hear from other people uh, to get their experience. How about me? If I learn a language, would I go through all the things that these students were going through? And that's what I did. So I went and I, I learned a third language. And that's when I started connecting my experience with what I heard the students were saying. And that's when I thought it was going to be um, an article uh, in a journal. And it turns out to be getting bigger and bigger. And we ended up with this book. <laughs> and so um, and it, was, uh, it was an enjoyable experience writing it, uh, going through the things and analyzing it even in more details and reflecting on my own self and how I learned English and how I learned my third language, which was Turkish. Uh, and so it was an eye opener even for me as an even language, uh, uh, an expert in the field, uh, an applied linguistic. And, and it's, that was, I think, one of the things that people, the reviews that I got, and it was, it went, it sold so good, is that people connected. People, a lot of people had the same symptoms, but they didn't know what they had. So they just thought, I'm not good in languages, and they just left it. But when they saw and they read the experience I went through, the students went through, and I'm like, I felt that too. So hmm, again, you know, why don't I give it another try? But this time with a new eye and a new uh, mentality. And uh, a lot of comments were really good. And so when you were learning t Turkish, did you go through the same symptoms learning that language as your students had also gone through and that you found in your research? Uh, yeah, that's what that was the most interesting part is that I thought I was an experienced uh, researcher so that I would know, you know, what's going to happen and I can control it. Apparently, we're we're humans. We we say we could do, but it, the reality and the fact is that yes, you can tell your brain that you know this is the best way to do it, but unless your subconscious is uh, is ready. It's not going to happen. So the the, the most uh, important uh, aspect is our subconscious is that controls our conscious, but we think it's the conscious that controls the subconscious. So uh, without going too uh, too deep into this, is that yeah, we're all humans at the end, and we feel all these um, uh, experiences and these feelings and emotions that come out. Uh, and that's the journey that I took the readers in is that how I learned it. And I, I specifically chose Turkish at the time and I explained in the book why I chose that um, is that I didn't want anybody around me to speak that language. Uh, and, and I was at London and London at the time I was um, 
research fellows also at Birkbeck, but also University of London. And I wanted uh, nobody around me to help me or to practice. I wanted to be like a foreign language. Uh, and that's how, and I continued that when I went to UC Berkeley. Uh, I continued and that's where I actually finished writing the book. It was in 2015. And so when you're looking at language and I want to move on to the work you're doing in Upskillable and other places shortly, but when you're learning a language, what, it is, what is it about that specifically that makes people anxious? Is it because it's so, I guess, public facing and outward facing and it's this interaction? Like if you make a mistake, it's very prevalent and obvious. What are some of you know, the reasons associated with language? So when when you're when you're um, when you're young, very little, you're a year or two uh, years old, you make so much mistakes, but your parents fix those mistakes for you. You don't get embarrassed because you don't know what embarrassment is. So it's okay if you don't pronounce things right. It's okay if you make a mistake. Nobody is gonna take it seriously. Uh, but now you're older, you're mature. You, you want to, to save face. You don't want anybody to laugh at you. So there's a lot of things that come in this area, the emotions that come out that you want to protect yourself. So that's when uh, it makes it much harder to learn a language while you're older than when you're younger. That's one. How you're being taught that language is also very important. If there's somebody that motivates you, uh, and is very uh, understanding, uh, very uh, simplifying. That's why the, there's the simplification is very important. If you're just being forced to memorize things and you're like, I have to do it, there's a difference. And that's where my coaching comes in is that there's a difference between what you have to do and what you want to do. And so those are the, the things that... Um, that make a difference in uh, in learning the languages. And, you know, you mentioned saving face. Obviously, someone that's lived in this region for 12 years, I know that's a very prevalent disposition, I guess. Are there other cultures where you've seen this in practice too? Oh, like yes. Like fear of failure? Yeah. Uh, yes, and, we ha and uh, I was fortunate enough to be chosen by the ministry, the Japanese Ministry of Education, uh, to come and to lecture at Waseda University in Japan, in Tokyo. Uh, and so when I went there, uh, at the time they, they thought I was British because I came from University of London, uh, and there was uh, a lot of students that were uh, trying to do research and couldn't find any resources on language anxiety. And so when I gave, I, gave, I went there, gave lectures, they took me to, uh, uh, to classes to, to, to see how in schools, how they taught English. Now I went into thinking that I am going to see in Japan uh, and all the students were with iPads and, and the high technology going on here, learning these languages. And then when I was, I was in there, I was like, hey, this is how we teach in, in, in the Arab world, you know, basically. And that's not a bad thing. It's just basically focused on memorization. Uh, and, and that's, that's uh, and, and what I had in mind, what, how they were teaching is totally different than what I saw. And it was, came to me that the cultures are the same. 
they rarely uh, speak or, or volunteer to speak because they don't want to make a mistake. It's their, they want to save face and they don't want to do that. And it's the same thing with the Arab culture. Nobody wants to, you know, in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in, the foreign, in the Western culture, or even in America, we go, we also say, if you can't succeed once, try, try again. Uh, but in, in the Arab culture, in the Asian culture is like, you know, you want to say it right the first time around because you don't want anybody laughing at you. But in, in a way, it's not, you should, if, you're, uh, if you want to learn languages, you got to accept you're going to make mistakes. People will laugh. So what? You laugh with them. It's not at you. It's with you. And that's always I tell my students. We're, if we make a mistake, we're laughing together. We're not laughing at each other. And so you got to have that kind of mentality uh, that to be humorous, it's okay. Uh, so what? It's all in the sake of learning the language. So let's make mistakes together. And so they weren't accepting that. And that's how I found that Asian culture is very similar to, um, to the Arab culture as well. Actually, what you just said, the let's make mistakes together, that's a beautiful segue into entrepreneurship where obviously yes. you have multiple failures along the way to success. So you did make the switch from academia to entrepreneurship. What drove that switch? Well, when I was at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, I, get, I got headhunted by McKenzie. Uh, and so at the end, we were, I, I passed all their, uh, all their um, interviews and we came to the last stage. Then they found out I was Saudi and they were thinking, you know, uh, somehow I got back to Saudi because at that point I was, I, when I was finishing UC Berkeley, I wanted to go back to London. But from Mackenzie, when they was hand, were hand hunting me, I went, uh, I was sent, my CV was sent to two ministries in Saudi, and I got offers from both. Uh, I chose the Ministry of Human Resources, uh, and we, I, was, uh, I was heading the department for uh, the, uh, uh, LND, training, uh, online training. It's a, a national platform. So I love that is that I created the department with them and we saw how the training and development was, but it wasn't enough with that is that uh, I was telling, okay, so we're doing all this training on, uh, on this uh, platform, but how do the students know what to be trained on? You know, so how do I know what I'm lacking and how do I know what I have a strength in? So with that, me and my colleague, uh, started talking and, and we came up with an idea. Wouldn't it be really nice to map so all the things that I lack uh, and connected to what training programs I need to have uh, so I can be in the right job? Uh, and, and, uh, and so that, with that kind of uh, me and my colleague talks came up with uh, an idea and from that it grew. Uh, and we developed Upskillable and we have, I have three, two other co-founders. Uh, uh, the third one came on board. Uh, so I'm the Saudi, we have an American and we have a British. So <laughs> the, the three of us uh, put, our, uh, put our heads together. We have expertise from different areas uh, and we completed each other and we came up with what Upskillable is now. 
Uh, and so if we talk about Upskillable, uh, Upskillable is uh, a, a platform uh, that, um, uh, that uh, can assess people on their cognitive behavior and, uh, sorry, uh, cognitive personality and skills. So we were trying, our aim was to get the right people uh, connected with the job description. So we wanted the right people in the, the right place for them instead of hiring somebody based on their CV. And we know from research shows 54% of people, uh, what they write on their CVs is lies. And that's the reality. Uh, and so, and it's not only in Saudi, it's, it's all over the world, this uh, statistics. And so we wanted to, to do it scientifically. And how are we gonna get these people without looking at their CVs? We wanted to see, do they have the capability to perform the job that they're going to be hired for before they get into that position? And so that was it. Uh, and then that's how we started. And now we're also mapping it out. So now we have a platform. When these people, when the candidates take these assessments, we now know their strength and their weaknesses. And from there, we can map what they need to take in order to, uh, to, uh, uh, to become better uh, and target those weaknesses and make them much better for, um, for further development from themselves. Uh, and, and the platform is so, so much um, interesting is that we also can help companies restructure their company because we know the strengths and weaknesses of all the employees when they take our assessment so they know who should go where. If you're downgrading, we also know who important people to be there in the company. So there's a lot of usage for upskillable uh, for companies. And now on November 16, uh, and we're very excited with that, is that we're launching uh, a campaign to help uh, in the IT sector, to help employment in the IC, IT sector. So we're opening our platform for free assessment for all candidates in the technology field to take our assessment and the companies can come and see who's the highest rated uh, in that field uh, and they can uh, recruit them. So we're doing that all to support the Saudiization uh, of the IT sector. So uh, a new, um, a new uh, uh, um, initiative in Saudi is to uh, Saudiize 25% of the IT sector jobs. So with this, we're trying to help uh, not only Saudis, but all over. So we're opening the platform and because we're an international company, uh, anybody can in the IT sector can come take our assessment and then we can map them. Uh, and when companies come and they see their abilities, who's strong and what, we even give percentages for each person uh, and we can compare candidates. So I can compare my abilities with you and, you, and companies can see who's strong and what. So the, the capability of upskillable is just uh, endless. That's fantastic. And then, I mean, I'm presuming all this is virtual now and if it wasn't in the pre-COVID yes, it, it is. No, it was always, it was always uh, virtual. Excellent. And, and when you do identify the gaps and the weaknesses, are you then providing support in terms of how they can improve these Weaknesses. I think you mentioned that you could map them to mm -hmm. courses and things like that as well. 
Exactly. Yes. So they know that this, uh, so they know what they lack in. And so they can start training and search. Uh, and even for HR, the companies, when they, when they ask us to assess the, their um, employees, we can tell them that, you know, your employees lack so and so and so they can start doing training programs for their employees, uh, specifically in certain areas. Uh, and so this is, is beneficial for the employees as well as the companies. Excellent. And we've actually had an audience question come in, which is, you know, spot on and, and relevant to what you've just been discussing. So thank you for your question, Stephen. He's asked, how can the USA education and immigration systems help make attending school for Arabic students more enjoyable and therefore attract more students? Okay, try, so you're saying, um, repeat that again? I didn't get that as well. So how can the USA, um, both education and immigration systems, mm -hmm. attract more Arabic students and make it more enjoyable for them attending school in the U.S.? Oh, attending school in the U.S.? Uh, uh, well, anything to be enjoyable, and that's the key word. I like that word, enjoyable, because education should be enjoyable, is that we have to have gamification elements in it. So if it's, especially if it's online. Face-to-face, -face, I mean, I, um, I, I have both systems. I have three systems that I've studied at. In the U.S., and I spent so many years of my life. I'm a graduate of University of Miami as well, uh, and uh, as well as the British system and the Saudi system. Always to make anything in education, you have to make it enjoyable if you want the students to continue learning, uh, to get them on board. Uh, but the education also has to be very, um, to, uh, very relevant because when the students graduate from the university, the job market is totally different. It's not completely, but there's a gap always between what we teach and what the job market needs. Uh, and so getting, uh, trying to get, making the education very relevant is getting what the job market actually is asking for and adding that in the curriculum before they graduate. And that's the most important. That's how we can make the, um, the education more important, more relevant. And if you tell these students, because I always look at the motivation factor, anxiety and motivation is what my focus is always on, is that if I tell these students that this is what the job market needs, but it, you know, and you should focus on that, of course, these students don't go to universities thinking I'm just going to study there. Everybody goes to the universities. The end result is to get a job and to get a really good job. So if you're telling them in advance, your education is relevant, uh, we've added elements of what the job market needs and making it uh, for the time now, of course, they're going to put more effort, going to be more enjoyable, and they, they'll be more motivated to learn. And when you talk about those gaps, are you mainly focused on the soft skills or the hard skills, or it's a combination of both? Well, it depends on what's the major. So soft skills were, you know, for sure, uh, all the, all different uh, um, uh, departments or any, anything that you're studying, you're going to have to have because that is just a must. Uh, but it depends on what, if you're engineers or you're medicine, it, it, it's, it's different according to the major that you're in. 
Mm. And you also mentioned about the uh, Saudiization, the 25% in the IT sector. Mm -hmm. With unemployment, you know, being quite high in Saudi Arabia, and this isn't just a, a Saudi problem, you know, globally, yes, um, with, un yes. with unemployment rising, how do you think this affects fresh graduates or people in, in high learning? How does this affect them psychologically when they, um, when they go in and also when they come out of study? So because there's a 25% of Saudiization, it gives a lot of, um, it gives them a lot of motivation into learning because they have a better chance into getting into the IT sector. So that's a very good thing for them, for fresh graduates. But the second thing is that um, uh, getting, you can't rely anybody. And this is my, I tell my students in the US and the UK, you cannot rely on what you learn at the university only. A fresh graduate still is a fresh graduate. You can't come out of the university uh, with just a one-pager CV. Uh, you need to start either on the summer, uh, summer programs, go into volunteer. You need to start filling that CV while you're still in the university. I don't want anybody, I don't want to see any graduate coming into the end of it and graduating and saying, I don't have no experience. Where have you been in those four years? Okay, let, we'll let it go the first year. Uh, how about the other three years? What did you do in those three years? You have summer. What are you doing in the summer? Are you volunteering? If you are a, a business major, go into the business world. If you are in the IT, volunteer in any company that is in IT and learn how things are being done. And then when you come to class, the education you get becomes relevant because you've connected the theory with the actual work, uh, physical thing that you saw. Uh, and that's when you become more uh, employable because you're going to put that in your CV. I was, I volunteered for this. I learned this, 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 which puts you at the top or uh, cut it at an edge. It gives you an edge to other fresh graduates that didn't do anything. Absolutely. And, you know, we take on interns all the time as well. And it's also great for the company because they're just so refreshing and they're so yes. interested to, to get involved, right? So it definitely goes both ways in terms of advantages. And I'm yes. also interested, you know, you mentioned because companies are, are so used to just looking at CVs, going through CVs, matching it to to profile, it's it's always been the very standard way of doing things. Are you also seeing uh, uptake from the companies themselves? They appreciate that you need more than just to box tick a CV to actually hire someone. How have you seen that kind of evolution yes. since you started? Yeah, uh, and this is this is the newest technology. So why even look at CVs and waste time uh, looking at CVs now? Because, and this is what, when, when we're now, let's say we're demoing to, uh, because it's this new concept in, especially in the Gulf area uh, with Upskillable, when we are demoing it to, uh, to the clients, they're looking, it's like, so we don't, we don't look at CVs anymore? And we're saying, okay, not at the beginning, you don't look at any of the CVs. We assess them, the results, we can give you the top three or the top five, and you don't waste your time with the 500 that applied for this position. You wanna be very efficient. You, don't, you wanna leave your HR to do the most important things. And that comes after when they got assessed, you got the top five or the top uh, three, 
they look at those people's CV. That's it. And and from there, you get to either interview them and uh, and see uh, their personality actually. It goes with uh, uh, with the company profile that you're, you know, the people that you want or the uh, the community of the company that you want. So that's that's what we are we're looking for. Yeah, certainly. I think we've probably all been in jobs where you appreciate that it's much easier to hire someone than it is to get rid of someone. So you'd better be, you know, super super yes. sure when you hire someone that it's the right fit uh, yep. within the organization. We have some more audience questions that have come in, some specifically related to language and some upskillable. So I'll start with the upskillable one first. Mm -hmm. Do you have a plan to market uh, an API for vocational or higher education organizations so that you can have other partners feeding into from their own online platforms? Or at the moment, is it all just your proprietary assessment tools? So we have our own assessment tools, uh, but uh, you're saying that you want, um, uh, I'm not understanding the, the full question. So you obviously have um, like a number of higher organizations and other training facilities yeah. that would have, you know, online yeah. courses to offer. Is this something that you uh -huh. are incorporating or you will look to incorporate? Yes, yes. Yes, yes, we are looking and we are trying to uh, get um, a connection with other universities, uh, other training centers that can provide so we can match uh, the, the skills needed for specific jobs and for specific sectors. So yes, please do get in touch with us. Perfect. And thank you so much um, for your question. We have another question from Sebastian. And thank you for being such a great supporter always, Sebastian. He has said, how critical is the learning of grammar to learning a language? He is fluent in three languages, yet he's never mastered grammar. Am I missing something in speaking these languages? No, you're not. No, you're not. As long as you speak the languages and people understand you, I go that's it you're, you're you're way ahead so don't be caught into the little details you will hearing the language so much and I always tell the students whatever language you want to learn start hearing it a lot be, words become very familiar structure of sentences become easy then when you actually say it you might have not learned formal grammar structure but you've listened and you heard it and your ears has picked it up and structuring it becomes easy because they're, uh, they, they become um, like engraved in your memory. That's how the, the, the sentence is. But this is at the beginning. This is chunking it up like that. But as you go along, you are able, and that's how uh, there's a difference between learning language when you're small and when you're older. When you're older, you have transferable skills that you, whatever you've learned in the first language, you can understand how uh, to learn it in the second language. You can transfer the skills and say, oh, uh, and you're, you can now, you're older, so you, you can uh, analyze the language. And you can say, every time I say this, this comes with it. And so they're always joined. And so you become, it becomes easier as an adult to pick up that grammar structure of the languages. And, and it is, uh, I'm not saying you don't do grammar, of course you have to, 
but it, it's at the beginning you get chunks of languages and you learn that and then you start saying digesting the language why is it always at this position that this word comes in and that's how you understand and that's when when grammar comes and becomes important no that's an, an excellent advice and i think you know when i think of language as someone that has studied badly i might add um and you see that they are, you know, part science, part art. And I guess the, the spoken form is often the art form and the grammatical part is slightly more scientific and, you know, structure focused. Um, we do just have time for one more question. And I know you've answered a number of really difficult questions. So I'd like to end on a slightly easier one. But what would be your advice? You know, you have this experience in academia, you have this experience in entrepreneurship, you have such a global perspective. What would be your advice for a fresh graduate that's about to enter the so-called, you know, real world? Uh, what, uh, I mean, I, I always say, please do not come uh, to the end of the university uh, or uh, your, the degree that you're taking and you don't have any job experience. It's, it's a shame. It's a shame uh, in all universities, there is um, um, uh, a career center. Please make use of it. Uh, go see what they have. They all have a lot of training um, uh, going on there at the career centers. Uh, they review CVs for you. They help you with that. Uh, so you do utilize it. And I've seen that people don't go and utilize the career centers until their last year or their last semester. And that's wrong. Year one, the minute you get into your foot is in college, you got to have that career center should be your friend. <laughs> that's the go to place you go to uh, and you start seeing what schedule they have, what courses that they have. It's non academic and it's fun to go to learn an hour or so. But it is good to have uh, that kind of knowledge, especially if you're, let's say, engineering. It's very specific. Go get something in something in, in a different field just to give you so you are when you come out of it uh, that you have a different perspective. It's not only very focused on one thing. And this is where uh, I wrote an article uh, in Arab News and I said uh, that this, the world needs more multi-potentialite. And this is the key word. Uh, I like to put two uh, underline this uh, uh, very you know very strongly bold multi-potentialite, there are people that are specialist generalists. So they are very, they have a lot of different, they have knowledge in so many different fields. You put those people with very specific consultant or very specialized consultant, they can do magic and wonders for a company because they bring so much background experience in different fields and this person that is very, very, you know, specialized in one thing, they can't see the world in another direction. They just know this is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. But when they pair them with a multi-potentialite, this person has a different uh, idea. And he's done some work here. He's done some work there. And from that knowledge, he transfers that knowledge. And then they would tell, so what if we do it this way? How can you try to make it done this way? So to push them to think outside of the box, and that is fantastic. 
And that's what the job market now needs. A lot of people don't, in HR, don't, might not agree with me. And they say, no, we need people that are specialized in this field. And I'm like, fine, get one. But get three, four multi-potentialites that have a different um, perspective from different fields. Because that's what's going to make you, you know, you want them to think outside the box. And you need these people to think, to help you think outside of the box. I absolutely love that. I'm going to take that and pretend it's mine, if you don't mind me. <laughs> I already wrote about it. So yes, take it. But I, do you know, I have always just sort of a, a closing, maybe comment from you is that I've always found it weird, you know, when, from such a young age, people are always saying, what do you want to be? when you grow up and you know from age four you're you're supposed to have a one word answer like I want to be an astronaut I want to be an engineer I want to be a doctor and yet so many of us I mean you know I'm still waiting to grow up I'm still not entirely sure you know we what to do want to think that we have to do one thing but you know in reality there are a lot of multi-potentialites exactly so why limit yourself and there's so much out there to be experienced don't limit yourself ever. Go with the flow. And this is my new article. Actually, uh, I just submitted it yesterday in Arab News. It's called Go with the Flow. But I ended with a word, uh, with a sentence, go with the flow, but in the right direction. <laughs> so, yeah. So why not? Don't limit don't yourself. Go against, don't go against the flow. That's yeah. <laughs> So, Dr. Tigreed, it's been an absolute pleasure. We have had um, a number of people actually say, how can they contact you? So what's the best way for people to get in touch if they have further questions for you or for about Upskillable? Upskillable, yes. So you have, uh, if you go to the website, upskillable.com, uh, you'll have contact us and, and that's uh, how we can get in touch with that. But also my social media accounts, you have my Twitter account, T underscore Al-Saraj, A-L-S-A-R-A-J. And uh, so, yeah, so you, there's, uh, and you can do a search, um, my name, and you'll see uh, articles. Uh, but the best way is to uh, go to upskillable.com and you'll see the contact us. We'll get the messages, especially if it's uh, for upskillable. But please do, if uh, the people that are listening to me, not only Saudis, all over the world, we're opening this platform on November 16, for everybody to go on and assess their skills in IT sector. And they will have a report to show them what they're strong in and what their weaknesses so they can learn and, and take that on board and go and, and develop themselves. Completely and, uh, free. That's an excellent initiative and I, it's great to end on a positive, optimistic note. So from my side, thank you so much for your time to read. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bye.